In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the immensity of your goodness and mercy in sending your only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. We ask that you would guide our evening as we probe into the mysteries of this divine mercy, which your saint Maria Faustina was sent to proclaim to the world. And we ask your mercy upon us and all of our loved ones and our whole community, everyone within this world of ours, that as we prepare for the Feast of Mercy on this upcoming Sunday, that our hearts might be conduits of your mercy into the world. And so we pray together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Give us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Saint Faustina, pray for us. Saint John Paul II, pray for us. All you holy angels and saints, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it should be said right at the beginning of this talk, um, even though Saint John Paul II figures very little uh, in the devotion and the history of the devotion itself, he's huge in the bringing of that devotion out before the world. St. John Paul II was not only the one who beatified St. Faustina, he's also the one who canonized her. Um, he, uh, he beatified her in 93, and she was canonized in 2000, uh, still under his pontificate. And it's a very special thing, it was a very special thing to him uh, to be able to beatify her on the Feast of Divine Mercy, and to canonize her on the Feast of Divine Mercy. And the good Lord, because he's so good, took John Paul II to his rest on the Feast of Divine Mercy. So, just this first little blurb about St. John Paul II, uh, as a supporter, as someone who was promoting the Divine Mercy, he is uh, he's come so far after St. Uh, Faustina and the immediate promo, you know, promotion of the, the Divine Mercy devotion that he doesn't, doesn't have an apparent role to play in it, but, he, but he's huge in actually bringing that devotion before the world and recognizing that the world needed it. So we will mention John Paul II later on in this talk, um, but please know that in my estimation, he is second to St. Mar Maria Faustina in, in the promotion of the divine mercy throughout the world, uh, even more in some sense than um, almost than her spiritual directors, who we'll speak about. So as we begin this talk, can you see this? Do we need to turn the lights down a little bit? So St. Faustina was born Helena Kowalska in, uh, in a 
beautiful big family. She was the third of 10 children. Uh, she was born in 1905. She died at the wonderful age of 33 in October of 1938. And if you think about the date, 1938, file that date away. She was in Poland and some big things were coming down the pipe in Poland in 1938. But Saint Faustina, uh, from a young age, had a very strong desire to enter the religious life, and her parents were dead set against it. I'm not entirely sure why, but they were both absolutely opposed to her entering a religious community, and so there was a sense of running away from home when she finally determined what community she wanted to enter and went there. Um, Saint Faustina was, um, went, went to a community in Warsaw, in Krakow, pardon me, I think it's in Krakow. Uh, and that community uh, was devoted to Our Lady of Mercy. So the Sisters of Mercy. Um, and there was kind of an initial honeymoon phase, as it were, for Saint Faustina. Um, that quickly turned into, Lord, why am I here? <laughs> this often happens, especially when we're doing the Lord's will, that he's leading us on, he's drawing us in, the consolations are huge, and then it seems like he evaporates. He's gone. And so within several weeks of her entrance into that community, she started to have big doubts and big concerns. And she was contemplating leaving the community and our Lord appeared to her and he told her, don't go anywhere. I want you here. I've sent you here and I have plans for you here. If you've ever read this book, if you haven't, I encourage you to. It looks very daunting because it's so huge. But this book is composed of lots of very little entries. Uh, Saint Faustina wrote her diary uh, at the command of our Lord. He told her, write these things down. Everything that, everything that I tell you, I want you to write it down because it's going to be for the benefit of other souls. It's not just for you. I'm not just appearing for your pleasure and for, for the benefit that you have. I'm appearing for the sake of the world and I have a mission for you. So I want you to write down what I say to you. And as we go through the story of St. Faustina's life and when she enters this beautiful convent in Krakow um, uh, to uh, the beginning of her writing her diary, here is here are some photos. This is her diary, um, which is translated, as we can see, uh, in a very, very popular edition by Marian Press. And, and this is the translation in English. Uh, the, the, really the number one translation in English. Um, St. Faustina was aided very immediately in her discernment of whether this was truly the Lord appearing to her or not, uh, not only by the existing spiritual authority within the convent, 
one of the things that people don't realize who don't live the religious life aren't aren't in a religious order is that obedience is everything to understand the will of the lord and to be absolutely certain of it requires not a neon sign but obedience for instance each one of you here probably came to Stillwater at some point, unless you were born here or raised here and have never left. And so if you are here in Stillwater and you came here, there was a matter of decisions, a matter of, of things that were bringing you here to Stillwater. For myself, I came here because God sent me here. End of story. And why do I know that? Because I was sent by my bishop. And because I'm under obedience, because I'm under the authority of my bishop, when he says, you're going to Stillwater, I say, wow, God wants me in Stillwater. And so obedience is, is huge because true religious authority and therefore true obedience to that authority clarifies the will of God. And so first and foremost, Saint Faustina was being guided in her discernment by her superiors. And when they said to her, well, just ignore these things and go on. She ignored them and went on with it. And our Lord kept appearing to her. Then he, she said, I'm not allowed to talk to you. He said, I know, but your superiors will come to see. Tell your mother superior this. And so she eventually was able to have permission to, and, but the permission was part of why she wrote her diary. It wasn't just that our Lord was saying, I want you to write these things down. It was also her superior saying, okay, well then write down everything he says to you, everything that happens, everything that you see, and bring those things to your spiritual director. And her spiritual director was this man, his name was Father Joseph Andras. And Father Andras was her spiritual director for a long time until she went to Vilnius and her spiritual director became this young priest whose name was Father Sopolchko. Father Sopolchko was the priest who poured his heart and soul into promoting the divine mercy image to the end of his life. We owe this man everything we know about St. Faustina because he helped her through the process. Now, one thing that's important to, <laughs> to know about St. Faustina, she was so holy and she was so profoundly high in in the in the forms of prayer like she had been drawn so high into mystical prayer not not just in some sort of self climbing upward sort of way but the lord was drawing her so so rapidly into the heights of prayer that she would come to her confessor is a true story she came to her she tells this story in her in her diary and she came to her confessor and confessed her sins. And he says, okay, um, 
And she says, oh, there's another thing, Father. I didn't do my penance that I was given from my last confession. And he says, what was your penance? And she says, one hour, Father. And he says, oh, why didn't you do it? She says, because I couldn't. I couldn't finish it. And he says to her, do you know the Our Father? <laughs> and she says, yes. And she says, well, let's pray it with me. Here we go. Our Father. She goes, Our Father. He says, who art in heaven? Silence. Who art in heaven? Knock, knock, knock. <laughs> and she was in ecstasy. Just saying those words, she was gone. <laughs> he said, okay, fine, I'll say the Our Father for you. <laughs> when you snap out of it. And so there were times that the Lord did these sorts of things in her prayer and in her life. But the very heart of everything that we know about St. Faustina is the fact that the Lord drew her into, um, into this role as the missionary of his mercy in the world. And I'd like to read to you a brief snippet from fairly early on in the first notebook of her, of her diary. In the evening, this is February 22nd of 1931, only three years after, so let me get my time right. shortly after her entry into the community. And this is what she writes. In the evening, when I was in my cell, I saw the Lord Jesus clothed in a white garment. One hand was raised in the gesture of blessing. The other was touching the garment at the breast. There was, uh, from beneath the garment, slightly drawn aside at the breast, there were emanating two large rays, one red, the other pale. In silence, I kept my gaze fixed on the Lord. My soul was struck with awe, but also with great joy. After a while, Jesus said to me, paint an image according to the pattern you see. With the signature, Jesus, I trust in you. I desire that this image be venerated first in your chapel and then throughout the world. I promise that the soul that will venerate this image will not perish. I also promise victory over its enemies already here on earth, especially at the hour of death. I myself will defend it as my own glory. When I told this to my confessor, this is one of the priests who was coming and hearing confessions at the convent. I received this for reply. Uh, that refers to your soul, he told me. Certainly paint God's image in your soul. When I came out of the confessional, I again heard words such as these. My image already is in your soul. I desire that there be a feast of mercy. I want this image, which you will paint with a brush, to be solemnly blessed on the first Sunday after Easter. That Sunday is to be the Feast of Mercy. 
I desire that priests proclaim this great mercy of mine towards souls of sinners. Let the sinner not be afraid to approach me. The flames of mercy are burning me, clamoring to be spent. I want to pour them out upon these souls. Jesus complained to me in these words, distrust on the part of souls is tearing at my insides. The distrust of a chosen soul causes me even greater pain. Despite my inexhaustible love for them, they do not trust me. Even my death is not enough for them. Woe to the soul that abuses these gifts. When I spoke about this to my to Mother Superior, Rose, telling her that God had asked this of me, she answered that Jesus should give some sign so that we could recognize him more clearly. When I asked the Lord Jesus for a sign as a proof that you are truly my God and Lord and that this request comes from you, end quote, I heard this interior voice. I will make this all clear to the superior by means of the graces which I will grant through this image. So this is the account that she gives of this moment that our Lord appears to her like this. And when several years later, when she was finally able to have the image painted by a man by the name of Kazim Muraski in 1931, so three years later, um, with the help of Father Sapochko, um, she was very, very, very picky about all the appearances of the image because he wasn't just painting a picture of somebody. He was painting Christ as she had seen him and she was trying to convey that. No, his hand needs to be a little further down and needs to be right here and not the palm, but the side of the hand, and the shape of his face. All the details down to the, the height uh, to his posture, to the way he was standing, various different things like that. And it really irritated the painter. Look, lady here, <laughs> I'm trying hard. If you want to paint it yourself, go ahead. But, if, you know, and so there was this kind of resentment on his part. He was not a believing man. He was an atheist, I believe. But he was a painter who had the capacity to do what she wanted. And so she kind of um, guided him through the process of painting the image, even though at the end she still cried because it didn't look enough like our Lord. But the image that she had painted is this image, is this, the, the Vilnius image. There are various different images of the Divine Mercy that are out there. All of them are very beautiful. Many of them are based on other existing images of the Sacred Heart or such things. And the reason there are all those other images is because this one was lost. It was lost for years and years and years, partially because somebody painted over it. And so there's actually a, a documentary that came out several years ago um, that uh, talking about the life of St. Faustina that talks about the meticulous process they made of, of removing the paint, uh, you know, forensically removing the paint to reveal the, the breathtaking original, but it was kind of a mercy because it meant that they were able to save the image 
uh, during Nazi occupation and then communist occupation of Poland um, for, for, the, uh, for the image to be rescued and to be able to be existing today and not to be destroyed. I'd like to talk about the whole concept within the image and within this, um, within this devotion. What our Lord tells St. Faustina again and again in different ways, he says, I pour out a whole ocean of graces upon these souls who approach the fount of my mercy. It's an ocean of mercy that our Lord desires to pour out. What we find in the, in the scriptural narrative of our Lord's passion is that at the moment after he has died, or during the time after he has died, when the soldier pierces his side with the lance, immediately blood and water flowed out, gushed out, a torrent. Um, something would not happen ordinarily. And there's kind of a sense in which this happened because our Lord wanted the very last drops of his blood to be shed. If you think about what happens when the heart is pumping, there's a contraction that pushes the blood out and the relaxation, which pulls more blood in. Contractions, pushing the blood out. Relaxation, pulling the blood in. And so on the last heartbeat, it would be pulling blood into the heart. And what the spear of the soldier does, the spear of the soldier pierces the heart of Christ and releases just the blood inside the heart or the blood inside the cavity. Oh, a torrent of what St. John, who was standing right there, says was blood and water gushing from his side. We see this, we see this in this image with the two rays that our Lord described to St. Faustina. He said, the two rays shield souls from the wrath of my father. These two rays issued forth from the very depths of my tender mercy when my agonized heart was opened by a lance on the cross. Happy is the one who will dwell in their shelter, for the just hand of God shall not lay hold of him. Um, this, these rays of light represent the blood and the water gushing from his heart, this ocean of mercy which the Lord wants to pour out upon the world, which he laments to St. Faustina, the world doesn't want. If only the world would receive this torrent, this ocean of mercy, which he desires to pour out upon it. And I think part of the reason that the divine mercy image is so badly needed is because of a false understanding of mercy. An idea of mercy on the one hand, as injustice, that God is not just. Or on the other hand, as something which God only does when he isn't being just. And the proper combination, the proper understanding of how justice and mercy work together is very much obscured by false representations of how God is just or kind of a, a separation of the Old Testament, God who's angry and he's, you know, throwing lightning bolts, and, and the New Testament, God who's all mercy. But we don't see that in fact, 
this is what our Lord says to St. Faustina. Today I heard the words, this she says, in the old covenant I sent prophets wielding thunderbolts to my people. Today I am sending you with mercy to the people of the whole world. I do not want to punish aching mankind, but I desire to heal it, pressing it to my merciful heart. I use punishment when they themselves force me to do so. My hand is reluctant to take hold of the sword of justice. Before the day of justice, I am sending the day of mercy. And so what we see is that the mercy, the justice of God is true justice. What is justice? Justice is the virtue of meeting out to each what that one deserves. It would be distributive justice. Or of dealing with another person in the way that is right, which is communitive justice. Um, legal justice, when there's a law, and you obey it, you're rewarded. When you disobey it, you are punished because justice requires everything to be set right. And so as a virtue, justice is concerned with doing what is right and avoiding what is evil. And if we set that aside, if we say God doesn't care about justice anymore, then we are saying God has thrown away the scales and he's not judging anything. The whole notion of the scales comes from, comes from uh, the ancient Roman uh, depictions of justice. Uh, in the personifications of justice be a woman who's blindfolded. She's blindfolded, holding scales. Because justice is not going to be partial to what is on one side or the other. It's just what is true, which is heavier, which is lighter, what, what is the actual, you know, do things balance? Justice in a transaction is I give you what I agreed and you give me what you agreed. And if one of us breaks that rule, or breaks that contract, breaks our, our word, we have got a violation. You know, you haven't put enough, enough wheat on this side of the scales to balance this out. So justice is a matter of scales. It's a matter of, of clarity. And so the Lord sees when we infringe his laws, when what we do is either good or is bad. But what mercy brings in is not setting aside justice or throwing justice away get rid of those scales. We don't need to decide what is right and wrong anymore. Mercy involves a sense of rescue. It's driven by love. It's driven by the desire that the offender might be saved. As God says in the Old Testament through the prophets, it isn't my desire for the death of the sinner, but that the sinner might turn to me and live. Some sort of vengeful, wrathful, unmerciful God. <laughs> See, the, the combination, the, the splitting apart 
of Old Testament and New Testament as if it's a different God is just really not even in the Bible. We find so many beautiful descriptions of God's mercy in the Old Testament, and we find the number one person in the New Testament who talks about hell is Jesus. And so what we need to do is we need to get a really robust understanding of God's justice to see that when we do evil, God has to punish it. The sword of justice is to make it very clear what is right and what is not, and to punish the offender. The reason that states have to, this is actually part of our, our the teaching of our faith, the reason that a state has to be punished in this life is because a state can't go on into eternity. A nation doesn't exist in in the next world. So these crimes of a nation have to be punished in this life. But the person, the individual person, can go on into eternity. And so sometimes people store up for themselves a whole lot of punishment. Now, in this whole concept of justice, what happens when you bring in mercy? When justice isn't just, well, you broke the law, so, you know, here comes your sentence. When justice is coming from a judge who loves the offender, then the judge wants to rescue the offender, even from his own justice. There's a beautiful story I once heard about a a judge, um, a magistrate whose son was arrested for a capital crime and brought before his father uh, to be given sentence, partially by the enemies of, of this magistrate. They wanted to see him, him either throw away justice or throw away murder. How, how, how can you possibly escape from this conundrum? And this judge looked at his son and said, as your judge, I condemn you to death. As your father, I will undergo your death for you. God is mercy to desire to save the offender and to find some way in justice to bring about that rescue. And so our Lord is trying to put out fires with something bigger than the fire. He's binding up our wounds with his own blood. And our faith involves a savior who has come into this world not to just take a hit for the team so we don't have to suffer, but to give us a way through him and through unity with him to be rescued from our own sinfulness, from our own pride. By our turning to the Lord with a contrite heart, we obtain his mercy. And so there's a pouring out upon the world of a salvific mercy in and through the very blood of Christ and through his self-sacrificial gift. But it's not just, here's a written check. You know, here's a blank check. 
you know, write whatever you want and do whatever you like, and I'm just going to take the hit for you. It involves our cooperation. It involves our receiving his mercy. And so in this devotion to divine mercy, what we are doing is we are saying, Lord, we're not, we're not sugarcoating anything. We're saying, Lord, there is a reckoning for sin. There always is. And that is good because evil needs to be punished. And good needs to be redeemed. And, and the poor and the helpless need to be rescued. And the wicked need to be, uh, need to get what's coming to them. But Lord, I look at myself and I see my sins and I know I deserve to be punished. And so I throw myself upon your mercy. And that, that throwing ourselves in his mercy then comes back to this. That his mercy is so big that it's far greater than anything we can do against it. If only we will allow him in his love and mercy to, to draw us in, make us part of himself. So what I would like to do is very simply go through some of the ways that this devotion to divine mercy is lived up. First of all, in the chaplet of divine mercy, even if there were a sinner most hardened, our Lord says to St. Faustina, if he were to recite this chaplet only once, he would receive grace from my infinite mercy. God in his justice will not just give grace to repent to a sinner who is constantly blowing him off because that would only make his situation worse. You see, in justice, if, uh, if you owe me something and I give you something to pay me back and you, you blow that too, then you've made your debt worse. And so God sometimes withholds graces conditionally from the sinner because the sinner is turned away from him and will not use them and he doesn't want him, him to dig the hole deeper. But by our actions, by our, you know, obtaining graces for ourselves and for others, we can, what we can do is we can help to bring the grace of God even to bear in in the life of a hardened sinner. And what our Lord is saying here is, even if a hardened sinner who refuses the mercy of God were just to say this prayer, it would operate on him. It would bring him to desire the mercy of God, the chaplet of my mercy. I desire that the whole world know my infinite mercy. I desire to grant unimaginable graces to those souls who trust in my mercy. And so, the chaplet of divine mercy, I think you all know it. If you don't, um, we're going to be praying it together on Sunday. Um, but the, the chaplet of divine mercy involves various different prayers uh, prayed on the beads of the rosary. And our Lord asked St. Faustina to pray these prayers. Um, uh, this is what he actually said. She says, the next morning when I entered chapel, I heard these words interiorly. Every time you enter the chapel, our Lord says to her, immediately recite the prayer which I taught, taught you yesterday. When I had said the prayer, in my soul I heard these words, this prayer will serve to appease my wrath, 
You will recite it for nine days on the beads of the rosary in the following manner. First of all, you will say one Our Father and Hail Mary and Credo. Then on the Our Father beads, you will say the following words, Eternal Father, I offer you the body and blood, soul and divinity of your dearly beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in atonement for our sins and those of the whole world. Sound familiar? This is the first prayer. This is the way we pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet. On the Hail Mary beads, you will say the following words, for the sake of his sorrowful passion, have mercy on us and on the whole world. In conclusion, three times you will, you will recite these words, Holy God, Holy Mighty One, Holy Immortal One, have mercy on us and on the whole world. That right there is what our Lord tells Saint Faustina to do when praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. There are other prayers which are drawn from other moments in Saint Faustina's prayer that are recorded in her diary, but that, that is in the nutshell, that is what the Divine Mercy Chaplet consists of. And our Lord is saying to her that this is to be a huge strength to people. Once, um, she says, whoever will, he says, whoever will recite it will receive great mercy at the hour of death. Even if someone prays it for someone else uh, at, the, at the hour of their death, I will apply the same graces to them. The second aspect of the hour of mercy, three o'clock. Why three o'clock? It's when Jesus died. It is the hour of mercy. And our Lord asked St. Faustina, just as a beginning thing in this devotion, that whenever she hears the clock strike three, just to immerse herself in his mercy. And he says, do that by adoring and glorifying it, to invoke its omnipotence for the whole world, and particularly for poor sinners. For at that moment, he says, mercy was opened wide for every soul. And this should give us a big hint into why there's this seeming conflict between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Between a just, wrathful God in the Old Testament and a merciful God in the New Testament, what? Why is there seem to be a conflict? Because the fount of mercy is the heart of Christ. And that mercy is not available to the world until it's opened on Calvary. And so the Lord has to punish people in the Old Testament times in a way he doesn't have to now because we're in a time of mercy in which we are, we are receiving the mercy of God and therefore able to be repentant. Look at Pharaoh, for instance, from the Old Testament. Pharaoh, will you let my people go? No. And, and he keeps being punished again and again and again for his hardness of heart. Why doesn't he just repent? Why doesn't God just give him the grace of repentance? Because that grace comes through Christ. And if Pharaoh had belief in God, if he put his faith like Abraham and like all the holy people of Israel during the history of Israel, in the coming of our Lord, there's a sense that they could receive that in anticipation. 
St. Thomas Aquinas says all the sacraments of the Old Testament were like the sacrifices. They weren't affected in and of themselves. The blood of a bull or of a goat isn't going to take away your sins. But it is effective in a sense of looking forward and foreshadowing the death of Christ. Where, when Christ comes and Christ dies, it's no longer got any purpose. There's no longer any point to killing the, the bull or the goat because we have the, the very reality. We don't need the thing that was pointing forward to it. So in our, uh, in our coming before the Lord, at the hour of mercy, at the hour that his side is being opened, and gushing out mercy upon the world, we're asking him simply to pour it. We're asking on behalf of the whole world, pour that mercy out, Lord. If there were a hundred people here saying, Lord, pour upon us your mercy, there would be a greater outpouring in a certain sense. Well, I, Lord, I want to pray like a hundred people <laughs> in a certain sense if you follow what I'm saying. And so in this hour of mercy, the Lord wants us simply to, to immerse ourselves in his mercy. And he tells her, if she can, to go into the chapel and pray during that time. Even if she doesn't have time to pray the Stations of the Cross or a longer devotion during that time, even if she just slides in and says, Lord, I love you so much. I immerse myself in your mercy. And if she's, he says, if you're not able to go into the chapel that time, put yourself there in spirit. Take a moment, pause, and place yourself in my presence and love me and adore me in my mercy. The feast of divine mercy that our Lord asked for was finally established. Uh, largely through the efforts of Pope John Paul II. And now on this Feast of Divine Mercy, which is the Sunday following Easter, uh, this upcoming Sunday, our Lord says, whoever approaches the fount of life on this day will be granted complete remission of sins and punishment. That's a plenary indulgence. Um, and by plenary, meaning the complete remission of all of the punishment, which is being that we have merited, that we have deserved by our sins, to say, Lord, I want to be absolutely and completely immersed in your mercy and just to drown my sins in that ocean where then they're swept away. Um, and our Lord asks this as something that be observed by the whole church, and the reason we're going to be having an hour of mercy on Sunday is specifically because of this request. Furthermore, what I think is so beautiful about this devotion, of, uh, the, the devotion lived through the Feast of Divine Mercy and the encounter of Christ in the Holy Eucharist in combination with this Divine Mercy message is that um, the Holy Eucharist is the very thing we are offering when we pray the prayers of the Divine Mercy Chaplet. We say, Eternal Father, I offer you the body and blood, soul and divinity of your dearly beloved Son. That is the Eucharist. And so there is a profound Eucharistic undertone to the entire Divine Mercy image. 
just as our Lord says that the blood and the water represent, uh, the, the two rays of light represent the blood and water flowing from his side in the, giving life to the church through the sacraments of baptism and the Holy Eucharist. So um, in our adoring the face of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, we are adoring the very heart which was pierced. It's the very heart that is gushing forth its mercy toward the world. And so I think the best thing, the very best thing one can do on the Feast of Divine Mercy is to adore the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament because we're literally adoring the Sacred Heart of our Lord on the feast day of the mercy with which that heart beats for the world. Finally, the Novena to Divine Mercy, for those who know about this, we all, you're already praying it, if you don't, if you haven't known about the, the, the novena, I encourage you to jump in. There's no reason you can't start today, a couple days in. And what our Lord asked Saint Faustina is this: He said, uh, "I desire that during these nine days you bring souls to the fountain of my mercy, that they may draw there from strength and refreshment and whatever grace they need in the hardships of life, and especially at the hour of death." On each day, you will bring to my heart a different group of souls, and you will immerse them in this ocean of my mercy, and I will bring all these souls into the house of my Father. You will do this in this life and in the next. Hmm. St. Faustina's mission right now is doing this. I will deny nothing to any soul whom you will bring to the fount of my mercy. On each day, you will beg my Father on the strength of my bitter passion for graces for these souls. I answered, Jesus, I do not know how to make this novena or which souls to bring first into your most compassionate heart. Jesus replied that he would tell me which souls to bring each day into his heart. And so each day, there's a subsequent prayer. Uh, there's a subsequent saying, today, pray for these people and then her prayer offering those people. This takes place if you're reading the Divine Mercy book. If you're looking in here for this, this is at 12.09 and following. Um, but when he tells her on the first day, which would be Good Friday, he says, today bring to me all mankind, especially all sinners, and immerse them in the ocean of my mercy. In this way, you will console me in the bitter grief into which this, the loss of souls plunges me. On the second day, which is Holy Saturday, he says, Today, bring to me the souls of priests and religious and immerse them in my unfathomable mercy. It was they who gave me the strength to endure my bitter passion. Through them, as through channels, my mercy flows out upon mankind. On the third day, which would be Easter Sunday, he says, Today bring to me all devout and faithful souls and immerse them in the ocean of my mercy. These souls brought me consolation on the way of the cross. They were that drop of consolation in the midst of an ocean of bitterness. I think it's a beautiful thing that's on Easter Sunday. On Easter Monday, which is yesterday, 
He says, today bring to me the pagans and those who do not yet know me. I was thinking also of them during my bitter passion and their future zeal comforted my heart. Immerse them in the ocean of my mercy. On the fifth day, which would be today, he says, today bring to me the souls of heretics and schismatics. Our Lord, our Lord uses those words. Today bring to me the souls of heretics and schismatics and immerse them in the ocean of my mercy. During my bitter passion, they tore at my heart, body and heart, that is my church. As they returned to unity with the church, my wounds healed. And in this way, they alleviate my passion. And so it's not just a focus on the tear that comes from, from heresy and schism. It's about the healing also that comes from the return, from the restoration of unity within the church. On the sixth day, which would be tomorrow, today bring to me this, the meek and humble souls and the souls of little children and immerse them in my mercy. These souls most closely resemble my heart. They strengthened me during my bitter agony. I saw them as earthly angels who would keep vigil at my altars. I pour out upon them whole torrents of grace. Only the humble soul is able to receive my grace. I favor humble souls with my confidence. On the seventh day, which would be Thursday, today bring to me the souls who especially venerate and glorify my mercy and immerse them in my mercy. These souls sorrowed most over my passion and entered most deeply into my spirit. They are living images of my compassionate heart. These souls will shine with a special brightness in the next life. Not one of them will go into the fire of hell. I shall particularly defend each one of them at the hour of death. On the eighth day, which would be Friday, Today, bring to me the souls who are in the prison of purgatory and immerse them in the abyss of my mercy. Let the torrents of my blood cool down their scorching flames. All these souls are greatly loved by me. They are making retribution to my justice. It is in your power to bring them relief. Draw all the indulgences from the treasury of my church and offer them on their behalf. Oh, if you only knew the torments they suffer, you would continually offer for them the alms of the Spirit and pay off their debt to my justice. See how the mercy and justice of God combine, how they draw together. We become the agents of his mercy, even for those in purgatory. And then on the ninth day, which is Saturday, our Lord says this, Today bring to me souls who have become lukewarm and immerse them in the abyss of my mercy. These souls wound my heart most painfully. My soul suffered the most cruel, the most dreadful loathing in the Garden of Olives because of lukewarm souls. They were the reason I cried out, Father, take this cup away from me, if it be your will. For them, the last hope of salvation is to flee to my mercy. And so in all of this, as we look at this, this whole devotion, everything that we've been saying, 
whether it be the hour of mercy or the praying of the chapel and the prayers of that our Lord inspired St. Faustina to pray, um, whether it be taking a moment in silence at three o'clock or, or preparing ourselves for a week and a day in, in preparation for this feast uh, to celebrate. Um, it is, it is um, something deeply needed in the world. And if we have any doubts as to how much it was needed, uh, then we just have to look again at the life of St. Faustina and see that uh, a year after her death, or during the year following her death, um, Poland was invaded by, uh, by the Nazis. And the people of Poland were prepared. They were prepared. They kept the faith. Not only did they keep the faith, but they were strong in their faith all the way through to the Solidarity Movement during the time of John Paul II's Bishop Episcopacy in Krakow. It, it was millions of people gathered outside of the church of Father Jerzy Pawłuszka, listening to him, him preach the truth. It wasn't just 15. It wasn't just a couple people who had managed to keep the faith. There were millions of people who under Nazi oppression and then under, uh, under communist oppression held the line. Why? Because they trusted in the mercy of God. And they trusted in his care for them. And they trusted that he who is totally just is also entirely loving. And then anything they had to suffer, they could unite with his suffering and make it salvific. They could live God's mercy even toward the people who oppressed them. And they could make present in the world the mercy of this heart, which has so loved men that it died, that it was pierced, that it poured out the very last drops of its blood in, in a torrent um, so that we might be saved. And so we thank God for the grace of his love for us and the grace of this devotion. May God give us a deep love for his mercy, a deep trust in his mercy, a desire to bring others to his mercy, and to say, it's not that what you have done doesn't matter. It's that his love for you is so much bigger that if you just immerse yourself in that ocean of mercy, it'll all be washed away. And by praying together and offering these prayers, we say, have mercy on us and on the whole world. We're praying for the whole world. And we're bringing down upon the whole world that marvelous gift again and again and again. The Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast can be found on your favorite streaming platform, including Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify.